0: Look at that, my friend. Isn't it beautiful? The Spruce Goose. It's been housed here at the Evergreen Aviation Museum for quite some time. I've never had the experience of aviation travel before, too afraid of heights for one. Not to say I wouldn't go if offered, but the idea of flying never really appealed to me. Which is ironic because growing up in Independence, we lived right along the flight path for the Independence Air Park. Specifically the northern inbound route. The sound of small planes was a daily occurrence for me. A lot of my family were also in the Air Force. One of my grandfathers was actually working on Air Force One when Kennedy's body was brought back, and I have made a couple trips to McCord Air Base in Washington. I don't remember much, I was about 10 years old playing Pokemon Silver on my Game Boy Color in the back of the car, but I remember entering Fort Lewis, going to McCord Hospital for my grandparents' medications, and visiting the commissary before leaving. This was back before 9-11, because after that even clearance for an 11 year old was extremely difficult. Well, I suppose you know what's coming. We are going to dive into the history of Oregon skies and the men and women who soared in them. But of course, we can't begin without a little backstory first. Since the beginning of time, or close to it anyways, humanity has always dreamed of soaring high with the birds. This has been illustrated quite extensively in our folklore dating back thousands of years. In Greek mythology, we have the story of Icarus, son of the famous architect Daedalus, who created the labyrinth that held the Minotaur, an abomination born of the wife of King Minos, who was cursed by the gods to have an affair with the Bull of Crete. In that story, Daedalus and his son Icarus worked to escape the wrath of the king, who imprisoned only Daedalus due to his knowledge of the labyrinth, So he instructed Icarus to bring him materials to build wings made of wax, sticks, and feathers to escape. And escape they did. Sadly, against his father's warnings, Icarus flew too high into the air, causing the sun to melt the wax and force Icarus to plummet to his doom. This is where we get the phrase, flying too close to the sun. And I know what you're thinking. The idea that flying higher means wax would melt. But we are also dealing with stories of three-headed dogs, angry women who turn people to stone, and a god of thunder who has very um, particular hobbies that we will not get into if we want to keep this as family-friendly as possible. Needless to say, I'm sure we can suspend some disbelief. However, it's not just the act of flying itself. Birds in general were revered as symbols of power and grace with many mythological deities using them as messengers, or taking the form of birds themselves, such as Odin in Norse mythology. In Egyptian mythology, when the land rose from the primeval waters of chaos, a bird was the first deity to perch on that land, whom the Egyptians named the Benyu Bird, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but let's go with it. Uh, It proceeded to create the universe, then the gods and goddesses to inhabit it, Of course, we can't forget the crows, ravens, and owls that share ties to witchcraft and are symbols of knowledge, and even omens of war and death. I think you get the idea. We as humans have longed to escape gravity and experience the freedom of the open air. And as time went on, the dreams of the skilled inventors of the world slowly began bearing the fruits of long, intensive labor to wondrous results and disastrous conclusions. I'm Marcus Axford and welcome to Oregon. We like to think that we only just recently mastered air travel in the last two centuries. Aviation communities have prided themselves on their records, but honestly we have been inventing flight machines for far longer than we would think is possible with such limited technology. For example, during the 1898 excavation of the tomb of Pa Ilmen in Saqqara, Egypt, a small artifact known simply as the Saqqara bird was discovered and researchers have noted how it entails an incredible number of key details accurate to aviation. It has been dated to approximately 200 BC and is now housed in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. This means that Egyptians likely had an extensive knowledge of flight for their time. The official consensus on what the earliest example of man-made flight is might also surprise you until you think about how much it makes sense. Because several hundred years BC in China, kites were being created and flown, eventually spreading their influence around the world. We all know Kite Man from the show Harley Quinn might seem lame, but given the history, he is also significantly symbolic. So, if you're rooting for him, then you have one more point to put in his column, which is a good thing. The poor guy could use a break. In the late 1700s, the Montgolfier brothers invented the hot air balloon, beginning man-made flights and paving the way for air travel, and also increased military capacity. By the beginning of the 1900s, advances in engine technology and aerodynamics made controlled, powered flight possible for the first time. And in 1903, following their pioneering research and experiments with wing design and aircraft control, the Wright brothers successfully incorporated all of the required elements to create and fly the first airplane. After that, all different forms of aerodynamic vehicles began to show up, including helicopters, blimps, commercial airplanes, and all kinds of different military planes and helicopters. In 1921, 18 years after the Wright brothers proved to the world that powered flight was achievable, the Oregon Legislative Assembly created the Oregon Board of Aeronautics, as well as its predecessor, the Oregon Aeronautics Division, and the first governmental agency in the United States to regulate aircrafts and pilots. In the 1940s, Aeronautics was given the responsibility to establish and maintain the Air Search-and-Rescue following a terrible accident. On October 28, 1947, a privately owned Beechcraft Bonanza airplane piloted by veteran pilot Cliff Hogue, set out from Klamath Falls with three Oregon government officials, the state's top five to be exact. The party included Governor Earl Snell, Senate President Marshall Cornett, and Secretary of State Robert S. Farrell Jr., whom Hoag was taking out on a 70-mile flight to go hunt geese. The aircraft was slated to land at the Coleman Lake Landing area, located about 8 miles south of Kittredge Ranch, where the party would be hunting. But unfortunately, the plane, jointly owned by Senator Cornett and the owner of the ranch, Oscar Kittredge, never made it. A search party was organized immediately, with 14 planes systematically scouring the area and the 123rd National Guard Air Squadron called in to assist with four planes of their own, taking off from their base in Portland. The search was narrowed to the area of Dog Lake in Lake County, due to a telephone tip from a cattle ranch employee who happened to be camping in the vicinity reporting the sound of a faltering engine shortly after 10 p.m. the previous night. On October 29th, at about 4 p.m., the crash site was located about two miles west of the lake in an area heavily timbered with matured ponderosa pines and so remote that the nearest town of Bly was 22 miles away. When rescuers finally reached the mangled remains of the plane on October 30th, they discovered all four bodies, three still in the plane and one that had been thrown from the plane from a door that had come open in the crash. As far as I can tell, no one knows if the men died on impact, or if they had succumbed to internal injuries. Considering the bodies were still strapped in, it's probably safe to say they had a quick passing on impact. If the story sounds familiar, it might be because hikers occasionally post pictures of the crash site, which is still there after all these years, likely because there's no point in trying to recover any of the wreckage due to costs and terrain. Today, it's an official historic site, being added to the National Register of Historic Places on October 18th, 2018. One more good reason not to disturb it. The 1970s saw the establishment of the Oregon Department of Transportation, or ODOT as we commonly know it, And with that, the Aeronautics Board was dissolved and replaced with the Oregon Aeronautics Division within the new agency, although it was granted its own individual agency in 1999. The Air Search and Rescue program was subsequently transferred to the Oregon State Police and the Office of Emergency Management in 1994 today there are 28 airports managed by the oregon department of aviation nine of those are designated as warning airports meaning they have non-standard lengths of tarmac or require special knowledge on the part of the pilot prior to flying in one airport in particular stands out because in recent history another airplane tragedy happened that redefined cottage grove airport also known as jim wright field forever. I won't be able to dig into every detail of the full story. I know this because our friend and colleague Finn John from the Offbeat Oregon Podcast did an episode on it called The Final Flight of Cottage Grove's Jim Wright. That was posted on September 1st, 2023, and is 27 minutes long. So if you want a more in-depth look at the story, go check that out. I also haven't been able to find too many other personal details about him aside from the story we were about to tell, although thanks to Finn's article, I was able to grab at least a few details of his life. Born on August 19th, 1949, as James LeRoy Wright, Jim loved aviation. His father had been an aviator, and at just 21 years old, Wright himself bought his first airplane, a Taylor craft that he had still owned. He even built a replica of a very unique aircraft originally designed by Howard Hughes himself to break a speed record in 1935. And if you don't know who Howard is, the best way to describe him without going into too much detail is the fun fact that Iron Man's Tony Stark is modeled after Howard Hughes. And if you know anything about the man, it's extremely easy to see it. For now though, let's focus on Jim. One question might be floating in your mind. How on earth do you build an aircraft yourself, especially with how much it costs? Well, you see, Jim had always been a gifted individual. Most engineers spend years at college, and yet Jim never once set foot in the halls of academia. Rather, he had been self-taught, having started his passion at a young age, working on lawnmowers. To call the man smart was a monumental understatement. Eventually, that talent would lead him and his wife, Betty, to start Wright Machine Tools in 1976, ironically enough, the same year that Howard Hughes passed away, which is a company that still exists to this day, producing machines that sharpen and maintain industrial carbide saws, among other things. Over the decades, it had become a multi-million dollar enterprise, sitting quietly on the outskirts of the small town of Cottage Grove, right next to the airport. And it was this money that Jim used to not only build the Speed Demon aircraft that Hughes built decades before, but also to buy other exotic air and ground vehicles alike, such as a red Corvette, a early 50s Beechcraft Bonanza, which for the uninitiated like myself, is a type of plane, and a Honda CBX six-cylinder motorcycle from the early 80s. He even had a street-legal formula race car, a gift from his beloved wife. He never thought himself better than anyone else. He just wanted to enjoy life with friends and family and share his love of engineering through beautiful cars and fast planes. As you might have noticed, I have mentioned the Howard Hughes plane a couple of times, and to those that don't know the story, you might be picking up on the significance of that craft. So. I think it's time to tell you all about it. In 1978, Jim had come across a magazine article from the 30s that, in combination with his passion for the Hughes plane since he was young, and his love for aviation in general, would spark his life's ambition to rebuild the legendary plane that was rumored to have birthed the dreaded Japanese Type-0 fighter from World War II, the plane simply known as the H-1. The H-1 was Howard Hughes' personal pride and joy, at least for about half a second. You see, the plane was only ever meant to break a world speed record, which it did, and then it was promptly tucked away and forgotten about the rest of Hughes' life. No one knows why, although plenty had speculated it was because the plane was somehow unsafe, a detail that Jim also understood was a real threat after he built it. It wasn't long, after he started test-flying it, that he understood the problems this beautiful relic had under the hood. But whether these also had been Howard's problems, we will never know. It didn't really matter either way, because Jim was faced with his own very real issues. A propeller problem. And I am no engineer or aviator, so I will just keep things simple for both of us. Basically, the engine wasn't getting the air cooling it needed, and would run very hot. To counter this, Jim created large counterweights on the propeller, which seemed to solve the problem. With the issues seemingly behind them, Jim and Betty, along with their engineering team, set their sights on one of several goals they had. In 2002, the team saddled up for Reno, Nevada to the Reno Air Races to break the world speed record, although this one was a different record than the one Hughes broke 70 years earlier. No one was touching that, but the record for the H1's size class was attainable, and attained it he did. Not only did Jim Wright break the record he came to beat, he shattered it with a 304 mile per hour record against the old record of 266 miles per hour. With his first record broken, Jim set his sights on a new one, the transcontinental record, a record Howard Hughes had broken in 1937. It involved a race against the clock from one side of the North American continent to the other, and Jim felt he and the H-1 were up to the task, if only he had ever gotten the chance to do so. The summer before the transcontinental event was going to be filled with appearances and air shows, starting with the Experimental Aviation Association show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, early in August 2003. He finished the show, stunning the crowds as he always did, and then headed home, stopping in Gillette, Wyoming, where Jim said something about propeller troubles again due to the difference in elevation. The Rocky Mountains were giving him a lot of trouble. Determined to get home, he laid out his emergency protocols, strapped his parachute on, and prepared to limp home if necessary. Sadly, we can't outrun our fates, and I don't think all the planning in the world would have stopped what was about to happen next. About an hour or so into his flight, Jim had made it to Yellowstone National Park before the worst-case scenario happened. The plane began to break apart. More specifically, the propeller had thrown one of its counterweights, causing one blade to take tiny bites of air while the other took enormous ones, creating a situation that could actually break the entire thing apart. Thinking on his feet, Jim cut the power to the plane and allowed it to glide. And, as the story goes, he saw a good place to land safely in the geyser basin. Only, as he got closer, he realized that there was a group of about 20 tourists standing right in his path. In philosophy, there is something called the Trolley Dilemma, which, if you're not familiar with, involves a runaway trolley with five people tied up on one side of the tracks, one person on a second set of parallel tracks, and you at the lever deciding who dies. It's a morality problem, one with no real solution, and one that most people around the world overwhelmingly decide that the right thing to do is sacrifice one person to save five. Another phrase that reflects this, that you have most likely heard, is that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Except, oddly enough, in cultures like China, Japan, and Korea, who would choose to save one versus saving five. It is theorized that because these cultures are more traditional and tight-knit, it's harder to form new relationships. And we as humans like to project onto objects, so it makes sense that they would rather save their best friend or grandmother versus five random strangers. Jim Wright was faced with this very decision, and seemingly because he made the decision to attempt to save the craft and land safely rather than bail out, it was too late to use the parachute. For people who knew Jim well, the choice was always clear on what he would do. The crowd watched in horror as Jim cut the engine again, veered right, and buried the plane in a cloud of dust and fire. It's ironic that Jim's last name was Wright, spelled exactly like the Wright brothers of old who helped change the history of humanity forever, and while I do not know if he was related to them, he definitely had their spirit and passion. And as the old saying goes, he died doing what he loved most, few of us can say the same. I was 13 when the accident happened, so sadly I would not have remembered the news of his passing, but as it is told in many stories, his funeral was magnificent. Hundreds of people attended his memorial service in nearby Springfield, and the city council even got to work naming Cottage Grove State Airport after him, now known today as Jim Wright Field. But the story, surprisingly, doesn't end there. Around the same time of his memorial, a letter came to Jim's family, a letter by three people from that tourist group who witnessed Jim's final flight. The Chen family, Ning and Mei Ling, along with their 12-year-old son Ian, were so moved by Jim's sacrifice that they gave a letter to a Yellowstone park ranger to be forwarded to his family, Describing what the plane did, how it went down, and how the weight of his decision in those final moments was not lost on them. Describing how honorable he was and how grateful they were for his actions. If you're crying right now, that's okay. It is a very moving story and one that we won't soon forget. And while there are still many stories of aviation in Oregon, we sadly can't get to them all today. However, I do have one last one for you. We have mentioned Howard Hughes quite a bit. He has a lot more influence on Oregon history than people might know, even if it's not direct. Because Jim Wright's H1 replica wasn't the only one of Howard's inventions to grace Oregon. There is one behemoth that has made quite the interesting journey, and I want to tell you all about it. The Spruce Goose never made it past one flight, although it was fully intended to be a solution to the German U-boat problem during World War II. The idea was to create a plane so large it could send troops, equipment, and supplies en masse to Britain to assist Allied forces, and was thought up by a leading Liberty shipbuilder and manufacturer named Henry J. Kaiser, who brought the idea to Howard Hughes for his company to design and build it seeing as Kaiser lacked the know-how to build it himself, and the fact that the machine would need to be capable of flying on water, as well as traversing the sky. Unfortunately, Kaiser lacked the patience required for the ambitious project. Although it was true that the project was dragging, due to material restrictions and Hughes' insistence on perfection, this was not something to be designed at the drop of a hat. As such, Kaiser dropped out of the project, while Hughes went on ahead under the project name H4 Hercules. And while this is the official name for the plane, for the sake of consistency, I'm going to continue to refer to the H4 by its more well-known nickname. Unfortunately, Kaiser might have been right in his frustrations, as the massive aircraft wasn't finished until after the war was finally over. Fun fact, despite being nicknamed the Spruce Goose, the entire airplane was actually made out of birchwood, although it was also affectionately called the Flying Lumber Yard. In 1947, the United States government actually challenged Hughes on his use of government funds for the aircraft, to which Hughes defended his stance by saying that he had his entire life and reputation tied into the beast, and was terrified of failure. To prove to the Senate that the project was, well, maybe not worth the expenses, at least justified in using them, he returned to California where the goose was being stored and got his crew together to do a taxi test on the water, with Hughes at the controls. He also invited members of the news press to get a first-hand account of the historical takeoff. The plane taxied and eventually lifted off the water for 26 seconds at 70 feet in the air, with speeds of 135 miles per hour for about one mile, a successful test flight in the eyes of many, and one that got Hughes off the hook. For whatever reason, the Goose was never flown after that. It was never thoroughly tested, and eventually the Massive Hulk was abandoned altogether after Hughes' death in 1976. From there, ownership was disputed by the U.S. government, and although they were arguably within their rights, I also don't understand why they would fight so hard for something that wasn't even made of steel or aluminum, again, due to those wartime restrictions. In the mid-1970s, an agreement was reached. The Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum would receive, for whatever reason, a section of the goose's wing, as well as the very familiar H-1 racer itself, The one that Jim Wright replicated. And if the dates of the agreement and Hughes passing are confusing you, it's not just you. I couldn't find a definitive time frame when all this was happening. The SUMA Corporation, which was a holding company for the business interests of Howard Hughes, paid $700,000 for the ownership of the Spruce Goose. Then in 1980, it was acquired by the Aero Club of Southern California. For over a decade, the goose sat on display in a large geodesic dome, right next to the legendary Queen Mary, as a matter of fact. Until 1991, when the Walt Disney Company, who acquired the property two years prior, informed the Aero Club that it no longer wished to have the plane on site. After a long search, the Aero Club arranged for the Spruce Goose to be given to the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville in exchange for payments and a percentage of the profits. The aircraft made the long voyage by barge, then train, then finally by truck, to where it sits today. There is just so much more to aviation in Oregon than I could fit into 30 minutes, and rest assured we will revisit the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum, as well as many other hangars and runways. And of course, we will revisit the story of old Howard Hughes, as well as Henry Kaiser. Why Kaiser? Well, as I said before, he was a leading builder on the Liberty ships being manufactured during World War II. And, as we all know, planes aren't the only famous feats of ingenuity in Oregon. But that is a story for another time. Hmm. My, my. They sure have some decent coffee here. Ah, I can't tell you how excited I am that fall is finally here. It's perfect museum weather, wouldn't you say? Ah, but look at the time. Ah, I have to get back to writing. A lot of fun stuff is coming, but you'll find out soon enough. In the meantime, you should enjoy the museum. It really is a wonderful place. Until next time, my friend, stay safe. This episode of Welcome to Oregon was researched, written, and narrated by me, Marcus Axford, with research help by Jessica Axford, Leah Palmerai, and John Palmerai, as well as a special shout-out to our colleague Finn J.D. John of Offbeat Oregon. If you like our show, you should check out our website. It's the central hub for all that we do here, including a feed for the podcast, an ever-expanding store, a growing list of articles, as well as reviews on camps, state parks, restaurants, and more. We aren't Yelp. We just want to help people on their own adventures around the state. We also have a really cool feature called the Oregon Resource Directory, which has a growing list of our associates, like Finn John from Offbeat Oregon, And Zach Ernest from the Statesman Journals Explore Oregon podcast, basically a place where you can get more information on Oregon and connect with cool people. We also have the links to our Facebook group, Instagram, and email on our contact section for further interaction. And don't forget, we also have a Facebook page now. Uh, Check us out at www.welcometooregon.net and come join our community on Facebook. We enjoy growing the site and its content. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I loved writing it. And until next time, thanks for listening.